0: Today I'm joined with Professor Ching, who is the CEO of Sengkang Hospital and he wrote this book, which is about his experience with prostate cancer after being a treating urologist for the condition. So, Prof Ching, you can take it away.
1: Yeah, the first question I was asked is actually a macro public healthcare system. Whether we actually have time enough, you know, to have a good conversation and build a good trusting relationship with our patient. So maybe, as I always like to start a conversation with a story, he was a uh, long retired uh, VIP, right? and he was waiting outside my clinic for quite a while and was complaining to my nurses. As he sat down, he said, You know, I'm a VIP, you know. Why do you make me wait so long? So I replied, I said, Sir, your generation have built such a world-class healthcare system, we can now treat everybody as a VIP. Just as you are a VIP. So he was quiet after that. So if I were a physician in the clinic or doing what rounds, oftentimes the patients expect us to pay full attention, you know, give them everything that they need. Uh, Someone would say this is N equals to 1, you know. The N is the number of people on the study, in which case, in this case, you know, I am the most important person, you know. heck to all the other people who are also waiting outside my consult room. I need all the time in the world. The patient who asks, give me the strongest antibiotic, you know and uh, I'm not concerned about the community bacterial uh, resistance and certainly there are surgeons who you know whether evidence-based or not will soak the prosthesis in vancomycin, will bathe the wound in iodine and do all kinds of things because they are worried about that particular patients in deference to what that act would do to all the other patients who are coming in Oftentimes, more is not necessary, better. So I think that uh, building that trusting patient relationship uh, is not just about decision-making. It's actually about connecting and being available to be the patient's uh, best advocate. So I want to tell a story here that uh, I will term it as one teenager, two mothers, and one bewildered medical officer. So... This teenager came in, you know, was with his cell phone and he was not looking at me. He was a bit skinny and, you know, pale. And the mother is quite a stern uh, character. And he was referred for some very minor, non-specific urological uh, condition that a quick history and examination revealed really nothing and ultrasound was also normal. And didn't have uh, too much difficulty uh, talking to him because uh, he was on his cell phone uh, searching for some digital art. So I asked him, you know, what are you doing? So he's a design student in poly, right? And the mother said, oh, you know, he's uh, having some language difficulty, dyslexic, so he's not doing well uh, in school. And now uh, a bit of further conversation found that, you know, he, he was actually posted to some attachment which he didn't like. He was supposed to help somebody design things, but ended up being a, essentially a potter in a warehouse. And he was very distressed and wanted to get out of that uh, dilemma. And then I kind of said, oh, you know, I'm also learning to be an artist. And I showed him some of my uh, painting, and we struck up a nice conversation, and he showed me some of his creation digitally. Then I suggested to him, you know, your art will be so much better if you go out to the park and connect with reality, you know, uh, using all your senses, you know, your sight, your sound, and your hearing, your taste, and even. But do you know that there is such a thing called, you know, the mind sense, the sixth sense? I said, no. I said, actually, the most awesome art are the ones that are abstract that you can connect with the mind. I'll give you an example. I told a teenager, You ask your mother, who is working, does she feel something wrong when you are distressed in your work attachment? Suddenly, there were two pairs of eyes that opened up. One was the mother, she nodded vigorously. And then my assistant nurse, also because she's got three children, and her eyes pop open and also nodded vigorously because I know that one of the child in child care is always giving her trouble and she's distracted at work. And this teenager said, wow, suddenly some light bulb went off. And then the rest of the conversation in the clinic actually was very cordial. It may be a little bit imaginative, but it just goes to show that when you connect with a person, not just at the head level, meaning professionally, I'll assure you that this person doesn't have a urological condition, but at the heart level, emotionally, that I'm trying to help this teenager find the root cause of his problems. And I connect with you, not by giving you more pills and more CT scans, but actually, understanding what the emotional, the humanity aspect of that relationship is. I can't solve all the problem. By being open, you know, to the emotional realm of a medical consult, I think it's uh, something that, uh, you know, we can all embrace.
0: Yeah, I think um, that really sounds like the, to me, uh, what, like, the ideal doctor-patient encounter should be like. Like, you see the person as a person. Like, we were discussing this before, like, the Maori greetings. Like, I see you. Mm. Um, and mm. I don't just see as a disease. I see as a human being. Mm. Um, but I was just wondering, like, um, was there a process in which you needed to be more comfortable and familiar with this process? Because I don't think this is something that comes innately to a lot of people. Um, and I think, uh, like, sometimes when I'm, like, clocking patients, um, uh, I get a bit uncomfortable with like the emotional bit sometimes but I remember like in my auto posting This, ama uh, was like telling me Yeah you know during World War II there was no milk so I had to drink coffee as a baby Then I was myself like how, how, how exactly am I supposed to respond to this right I'm not sure if like patients come into to doctors like expecting this emotional response Or expecting the doctors to like see them per se Um, I was wondering, like, for you, like, was there, like, a process in which you had to get comfortable with this, like, tandem?
1: Well, certainly, I mean, we all go through phases. And even today, you know, in my clinic, you know, we are still seeing 25 patients. So there's definitely a time constraint of how much you can do this. It takes time to connect. But I think it's also the attitude, the attitude that the patients and the family can see, whether you are there, whether you're making eye contact, or are you just saying those nice words, you know, the heart is not in it. And sometimes it's, you know, the the reckoning that, you know, that, that person there has a need and you are open to it. So one way, You know, I always enjoy my clinic. I mean, of course, you know, as a CEO, running to the clinic is a great excuse, right? (laughs) Rather than long meetings. But I'm always uh, curious of the personality that I meet in the clinic, and I have always been rewarded how awesome some of these people are, right? I'll give you another story, right? This 86-year-old came in in a wheelchair with his head hanging, and uh, not interested in anything. He was wearing a diaper and he was brought in by his uh, polytechnic son and couldn't really you know, talk to him because it was hard of hearing. But when I examined him, I realized that he's actually spoke very good English. This is like his dementia. And when I asked him, what did you work as before? So he said, oh, I'm a agricultural expert. It turns out that he has a PhD from Taiwan and he was for many years the director of the AVA, you know the food supply, you know all those people who look after whether our chicken come from Brazil or Malaysia and whether they are safe and where our vegetables come from and he was actually a agricultural expert and you know we struck up a nice conversation and then i suggested to him hey you know instead of uh, being you know kind of maroon at home why don't your grandson also do a project with you and help us with our community uh, farming? You know, I'm really uh, interested in the hydroponics. You know, growing multi-layered, uh, self-sufficient vegetables in, in, on the campus. And then he started saying, "Oh, how much uh, space do you have? Is there enough sun? You know, what's the water supply?" And he was a very different person <laughs> when he left the clinic. And, you know, I'm not sure that I can solve all his problems straight away. But I certainly, for that few minutes, you know, gave this 86-year-old man uh, reasons to love himself. i mm-hmm. uh, reawakened, you know, I'm a person. I'm not just a burden to everybody. Mm-hmm. I have something to contribute even at age uh, 60, 86. And then grandson said, yeah, 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 I can do that as a project as well. I will bring him. So I'm still to follow up on that particular encounter. I take home for me is the personality that we see in the clinic despite the heavy schedule. If we open our heart, they are very awesome. Even the one who comes in, you know, complaining this and that and that. If you take it at the right attitude they all bring in the lessons for us. And if we are curious and we are open to that learning, rather than Mm -hmm. seeing oh, how many more cases have I got to see, can I just send this guy off for another x-ray so that I don't have to look at it, Uh, you know, it will be somebody else's problem. But you treasure the encounter as as I do Mm -hmm. that, you know, hey, I really look forward to the clinic. Yes, I know I'm going to miss lunch, but so what, right? We are all trying to go on a diet anyway. (laughs) And you treasure that experience of doing what round because, you know, I think medicine is great. You never really know who's the next person and you will meet. And if you are open to the encounter and the discovery and you're curious, ask one or two questions you may uncover, you know, a box of treasure that, uh, you know, nobody else can give you. With that attitude, I really don't think that, you know, hard work is a reason for burnout. The same Goes for not just patients, but also your colleagues, your mm-hmm. supervisors. Yeah, you know, they may not be always nice to you. But if you are open to discover, and you will never know what you will see. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, to me, it's personal, personal mastery. It's mm-hmm. about, you know, in this uh, very complex environment, how do you find joy, you know, in the, the daily living?
0: Yeah, I think that's... um. That's a perspective that' is not very common. But um, like, I mean like even like thinking about talking to my classmates lessons and I think um, there's that idea that like medicine can be learned from the textbooks with minimal patient encounter. And I was also thinking about it in the context of like when you're a junior doctor. I think it's super stressful to be a junior doctor. I mean we I mean, are not in that position yet, but sometimes seeing the MOs or the HOs, I think it's very hard to have this sense of self-mastery when you are faced with that amount of stress every day and also not to not to preclude the fact that there is also uh, abuse of healthcare workers sometimes people say verbally abusive things and this really eats into your core and I remember like seeing like some MOS crying in clinic because of these encounters if you are in that position right now I mean I know it's very far for you but let's say if you are in that position right now what steps do you think someone should take in order to get that kind of perspective because it's very hard when you are in the battleground.
1: Certainly there are red lines that people should not cross. So if the supervisor or the senior is abusive because they want to set a certain tone or encounter so that they can sleep. I certainly have heard story that, you know, they give you the shama away, you know, the first time encounter I scold you for things that uh, you are junior, I'm senior, I basically set up the hierarchy. I scold you for things that actually you don't deserve, and I know, and I know you know that I know. And I'm just telling you I'm going to scold you anyway and abuse you so that you won't call me at 2 a.m. for some nonsense uh, problems, right? But certainly if you encounter any of those, you know, please you know, bring it to me. You know, if you are working in this hospital, I will act on it straight away. Because I think we cannot tolerate abuses, whether verbal, physical, or mental. But I also think that it is, you know, the lover creates the beloved. If you do your part and, you know, you win the trust and, uh, you know, relation with your seniors, The seniors are there, you know, also rewarded by being asked questions. You know, they like to be asked and giving you things to do. And I always remember my mentor, Katie Fu. You know, it may be 6.30 p.m. in the operating room and the anesthetist is waiting to go home and trying to peep over and see how much more you you are going. But Prof. Fu will always make sure that everybody around the patient gets something to do even if it's just putting one last stitch on the skin or you know doing some checking and everybody gets something to do to go home and feel that oh you know I've contributed to that particular person's recovery I have learned something on that day itself and I try to perpetuate that in my own practice and I think there's a lot of these uh, valuable uh, traditions in healthcare in medicine that we value and is paying it forward because well you get to do you learn well, one day i'll be the patient that you are operating on so but i think the best is if you can actually find you know the reasons to love yourself even in the most adverse uh, condition because you cannot predict that patients you know uh, family you know who had just come back from the us they have many many reasons why they are not happy and you are, you look like someone that I can abuse because you represent the you know authorities and the government and the unfairness of the system, and if you react to that all the time, you know you have this ego that you know I'm, you know ideally you know I'm bringing you the good news and the best treatment. Why are you abusing me? And you you feel that this is unfair? Then life will be very very tough. But if you are available, you are open to the you know, the awesomeness of this whole uh, place, right? We are talking about Maori now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the people who have come before you and the people who are around you that come together. And in a way, good and bad, we rejoice in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I often encounter s- students that, uh, you know, I'm so busy, I can't really, uh, you know, finish my studying and, you know, I skip uh, ward times and, I skip even postings, you know. I've heard junior medical officer that said, you know, I'm going to be a plastic trainee. Why am I doing urology? It's a dead wood posting, you know. I think the attitude really uh, leaves much to be decided. A, when you walk to the ward, even though your colleagues say, oh, you know, that patient has no clinical signs. Oh, it's it's very boring, you know, all the patients are post-op and uh, they're all waiting to go home anyway. Well, just like, you know, you never learn how to build a hospital sitting in a meeting room looking at PowerPoint. You have to do the sidewalks. You have to go and touch and feel and smell and find out what is actually happening. There is no replacement of a three-dimensional perception of a real human being, you know, whether in the clinic or in the ward. And if you care to just, you know, do a full physical examination, and if your eyes are open to all perspectives, you, dis- you discover myriad things that the houseman has missed, the animals have missed. You talk know, so a conversation with someone, you learn something, never fails. And in fact, sometimes it's what, oh, in medicine, actually, it is much tougher to declare someone normal. Mm-hmm. Everybody is abnormal in some ways. There are some clinical signs. If someone gives you a hundred marks, it's fake. <laughs> it cannot be. And there are no Deadwood postings, right? Any any postings in medicine, if you have the right attitude, you learn tons. I
0: think that kind of answered the question that I was going to ask. I think that, yeah, there's a sort of like, skepticism of like whether there's actually something to be learned from the patients. Yeah, there's no science. There's no expensal, pulsatile, mass to be felt on the abdomen, so why why even bother touching the patient? It's like recently there was this kind of like a debate on Instagram that in this manpower planning, you are just but a manpower. You can find joy in what you're doing, but that's not how you're valued by the system. So I was wondering like, what's your take on this?
1: Well, every generation always think that the last generation are better off. (laughs) There's less competition, you know. I miss the birthday by one day. Otherwise, I would have graduated one whole year earlier than my cohort, right? And, you know, my medical student's days, the then health minister, To Chin Chai, imposed the bond, Mm. right? I, having come from Hong Kong myself, 12-year bond? Fantastic! I'm guaranteed employment for twelve years. <laughs> I think that the competitions will always be there, you know, whether you're in healthcare, in legal services, or and certainly healthcare is a lot more complex today than before. But it's also full of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And why we are always short of manpower is because just like healthcare has a way, if we uncurtail, right? Of uh, confiscating all resources, money in particular, from education, housing and transport. So it's always a bit of rationing. Healthcare also attracts, you know, the brightest and the strongest, you know, all the four A's uh, people. And away way from a macro management point of view, it's inconceivable that, you know, you confiscate all of the human resources into healthcare mm-hmm. and leaving none for, you know, Uh, other just as important as a nation um, uh, demands so there will always be this uh, uh, constraint you know I wish I was a medical student all over again partly because you have so many opportunities yes you know competitions are in every generation and there's never a you know a free lunch and I think that uh, today we have to be a lot more adept, whether it is for yourself, personal mastery, your own livelihood, or for healthcare as a system, at the micro and the macro level, it is definitely a complex adaptive uh, challenge. And the sooner we grapple with that, that whatever you learn uh, in five years of medical school will be completely wrong by the time you graduate, and that pace of change will be accelerated, whatever you think, oh, uh, if I get my uh, residency in uh, ophthalmology, I'll be set for life, I'll be driving my Ferrari, and I don't have to read another journal for another day, I'm sorry, it ain't gonna happen this time round.
0: So maybe Prof Cheng, could you give us a bit more examples about this complex adaptive system that you mentioned? Or maybe like, give us like an overview of what complex adaptive system even is.
1: I have this Alaskan story that I heard, which is, so in Alaska, the Eskimos, how do they bring up kids? They teach them how to hunt. So it's about throwing a, a spear or, you know, bringing down a, I don't know what kind of animals they hunt, you know, maybe bears. And two things were, I thought, very applicable to us. He says, if you practice throwing a dart at a target a hundred times, a thousand times. You cut down the error, you do all the adjustment. You can almost get to the target 99.99% of the time by practice. Imagine if you throw a live bird at the target. Whether the live bird will fly directly to the target or not depends on whether there's a bird bath or water there, there are bird seeds, or better still, there are baby birds there waiting for me to bring food home. The bird has full autonomy of whether to reach the target. So it's very much like in medicine, if someone has a road traffic accident, it's brought to the ED and to the ICU in the operating theater, the patient is unconscious, family may be worried, but the healthcare system knows what to do. Intubate, stop the bleeding, angiogram if necessary, do the operation. Decrease variability. make sure that all the blood transfusions are of the right type, you know, so that you have a reasonable and almost idealized outcome given the circumstances. However, and the patients have very little control. However, if you see an Eskimo with diabetes for six minutes in a clinic and you prescribe some diabetic medication. Whether the person is going to take the medicine, adhere to the diet, do the exercise, is very much like throwing a live bird at the target. Whether the live bird wants to fly to the target, and so I was very thrilled that the conversation in Alaska in Nuka system apparently to our older generation grandfather diabetic is. What is the you know most uh, treasured? Uh, experience that you have with your grandson, right? He said, oh, I would like to teach the grandson how to hunt by bringing him across the freezing water streams and throwing darts at the target. Then the dietician said, well, then you really need to control your diabetes so that your eyesight, you know, of throwing the dart can be preserved and you don't have Glove and stocking, paresthesia of your feet so that you can still cross the river. Bing. Purpose is now aligned with the healthcare systems. Uh, But whether the patients are with you or not depends on whether we are open to have that conversation. So I think going into the future of complexity of chronic diseases, aging care, where the goals and the motivation of each individual are very, very different. We have to be ready to connect uh, not just at the head level, telling them what is the you know evidence-based approach, but also at the heart level, you know, connect with them. what is your motivation? You got cancer now. What is your worst fear? What's the shadow over you that helped you uh, choose one uh, option versus another? When we understand that, we become the patient's best friend and the advocate. And I think that is such a precious, a gift that healthcare workers are given. Being a doctor, being a nurse, is an immense privilege. It's a privilege given to you, allowing you to access the deepest secrets. And that privilege comes with a heavy responsibility.
0: Thank you so much for sharing so much with us, Professor Ching. I was wondering, do you have any last words of advice that you would like to share or give your students?
1: I just reflected on some of my past mistakes. I did go on stage maybe 10 years ago and I said I regretted being such an asshole before as a senior consultant sometimes to my colleagues and sometimes even to my patient. I vividly recall actually going on stage apologising to this unknown patient that was referred to me uh, for cystectomy, which is removal of the bladder for cancer. And he was a very timid, very fearful, very anxious patient as I expected with a cancer diagnosis. But after two clinic consultations that I tried to connect with him, I sensed that I couldn't really build a trusting relationship with him that is so necessary to bring this patient through the journey of a highly risky uh, major operation. So I went back to the person who referred to me and I said, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think it's safe for me to do this operation for him. Can I suggest somebody else? On reflection, I said, I think to that patient and the family, having seen them twice and talked through all the complications and all the indications and all the different scenarios, uh, to say that now I'm not operating on him is a major abandoning, betrayal even, and loss of faith of the system. I kind of swore to myself that I won't do it again in front of the public. Uh, That was on stage and I'm glad that I had the courage to confront my own ghosts and continue to improve on my ability to not just technically improve the care but also connect with our patients emotionally and bring them through difficult situations. So I think We are so grateful that we always get second chance in healthcare. We can't serve all our patients 100%, whether technically or emotionally because, well, healthcare is complicated and medicine is not an exacting science and sometimes even the best evidence will fall short and our best effort to connect may also misfire. But if we reflect and we learn and we discuss, you know, each case scenario, hopefully that portion of misfiring will become smaller and smaller as we become more experienced. And also impart that to the next generation so that they don't actually have to learn those painful lessons. Another story was when I was a medical student, there was a very young up-and-coming surgeon. In fact, the son of uh, the lay professor, Prof Khanna. And he suddenly gave up his brilliant surgical career because he met one complication that eventually led to the patient succumbing to the complication from a perforated uh, esophagus from a scope. Those days it was rigid and dangerous uh esophag- esophageal scope. And I think many of us, whether medicine or surgery, will always encounter those regretful moments we wish we have done something different and not arrive at the poor outcome. But I think that we also have to be aware that I think reflection is good, learning from our past mistakes is good, but to be so consumed by the regret and the upsetness and the anger with ourselves that we are no longer functional and no longer able to learn those precious lessons I think it will be shortchanging all of the people, all the patients that have come before that particular episode, that has actually paid dearly through their own suffering because of our misfiring. I think those precious lessons we have a responsibility to pass on, not just to our students but also to ourselves in the next patient encounter. So I think we should all be, as a last word, very grateful for this great opportunity to serve, to learn and to teach and to continually improve the system. Thank you so much, enjoy talking to all of you.